Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, and welcome to The Crux. I'm here with Mike Fernandez. Hey, how are we doing? Good, good. I'm in the Boston University studio. So let's get right into some of the news and some of it having to do with things going on here on campus. In a couple weeks, uh, there's a conservative talk show host. He's the uh, editor-in-chief of the right-leaning Daily Wire news website. A guy named Ben Shapiro is coming to campus to uh, to give a speech and he's uh, his visit is sponsored by the convert conservative student political group BU Young Americans for Freedom and so this has created a kerfuffle on campus um, there are students who don't believe that someone like uh, Mr. Shapiro should be allowed to speak at BU and and over the years he's tweeted and said some things that are offensive about uh, gay and lesbian. He said transgenderism is a mental disorder in a in mm-hmm. a tweet. He, of uh, President Obama, he said Jews who vote for Obama are by and large Jews in name only, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a record here of hate speech, mm-hmm. I, I think you would call that. Yeah. And uh, so, Mike, this just raises the whole issue of um, who should be allowed to come to campuses like this and I have to say the the university's response here, I thought I've been impressed with because they're actually in the midst, like a lot of universities, of, I think, of crafting a university-wide free speech policy. And the idea of free and unfettered speech is, you know, at the core of the mission of a lot of universities, including here at BU. My question to you is, I agree with that completely. As do I. It, right. But what how far is too far, and what's the line? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. If you really embrace that liberal thought of freedom of speech, um, it's it's like anybody can have a microphone. Right. And there's also something to be said about universities as being a center for the confluence of various ideas right. and to understand even the craziest, if most idiotic of ideas right. because they help us. Right. Right? I mean, they, they help inform Do who these we are. fringe people, in fact, help inform what might be a more rational set of thoughts, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I remember, I mean, even when I graduated, yep. uh, one of the honorees at the graduation- This was, is from Georgetown, everybody. Uh, was George <laughs> Will. Oh, okay. And and you know, and it was at a time where conservative politics was being taken on right. on, on campuses. Although Georgetown was a pretty conservative yeah. campuses campuses go at the time, uh, but literally there were people who stood up and turned their back to R- George Will. Wow. You know, and 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 this guy is you know Ten way <laughs> way to the right of George Will. And then I was also struck. I was on the advisory council. Uh, for the dean right. of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at University of Minnesota. Minnesota, right. And they were honoring Condi Rice and giving her an honor. This is after she had stepped down as right. Secretary of State. 
And yet there were protesters, and they were having to shuttle her through campus very carefully. Someone as accomplished as, as Someone as accomplished as her, someone who actually works on a university campus at, at Stanford. At Stanford. Yep. Uh, but because they saw her as associated with the weapons of mass destruction during uh, the Correct. Bush yep. years, that uh, uh, they felt that she didn't have a right to be on that campus. Yeah. And I, I actually think that's wrong. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens with BU, how they finalize this, because there has to be a too far. Right? There does. Yeah. I, I, I mean, uh, to me, I mean, uh, having a white nationalist, yeah, right, exactly. uh, uh, you know, address uh, a campus that might be too far. Right. Uh, somebody who might actually come on campus and incite riot yep. in, in, in some vein uh, would be too far. Yeah. You know, somebody who... Uh, comes out and says, you know, we should go ahead and have programs, under, you know, yeah. against some group of people. That's too far. That's too far, exactly. Um, but getting there is, I think, a touchy thing. Yeah. And, and 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 what do you rule in and what do you exactly. rule out? And uh, what do you do in the gray cases? Yeah. And some might argue that actually Ben Shapiro is a gray case. It's a gray case. Well, and, and I would say for, for BU as an institution, uh, you know, universities have long been criticized or recently by the Wall Street Journal editorial page and others as bastions of liberal, yeah. you know, uh, thought. And so in this case, I'd have to say I would err on the side or I would probably decide to let yeah. Shapiro speak here, if only to expose students to a different kind of thought. And, and I give the university credit for that. It's a hard, hard decision. It is yeah. a gray one. But I think my decision would probably be to let the event go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the biggest liberal thought that exists this is coming from someone yeah. who has a strong liberal bias right. is the the thought that Ex you can share any idea, that right. you can have conversations, right. that uh, you are tolerant yeah. of others. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's a very, very difficult play yes. uh, to rule somebody out because he or she disagrees, disagrees with you. So the second story, I mentioned uh, a couple of BU things. We're, we're coming off as we tape this, the weekend in which it was uh, announced that uh, U.S. troops had cornered um, and uh, he eventually uh, reportedly killed himself, the uh, ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi. Yeah, Baghdadi. And um, great news for the United States and great news for the world, really, um, in, in many ways, and a triumph by the U.S. forces um, that uh, tracked him down. Uh, however, there has been some controversy. Now, people will say, well, wah, 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 you know, this is, you know, picking around the edges by some of the newspapers covering this, was first off uh, a a BU graduate, Pete Souza, who it's was a great, the, photographer. A great photographer in the in the uh, Obama White House, was the presidential photographer. Uh, uh, you re and you remember the iconic photo of Obama, President Obama, in the you know situation room when they were getting Bin Laden. You know that very intense. They're all glued, seemingly right, to a television. To, to a television where they were watching this operation in some way. And then, of course, the White House photo comes out yesterday. And it looks posed. They're all looking into the camera. They're all looking into the camera. And so Pete uh, has told several the people. The computers aren't plugged in. Right. The computers <laughs> aren't plugged in, et cetera. And, and Pete points out in some of the, I actually read about it in the student newspaper here, 
um, that uh, the timestamp on the photo is almost two hours after the alleged oper or uh -huh. the two hours after the operation occurred. So it was not as presented. It was a stage photo trying to reproduce apparently some of the iconic uh, images that we've seen of presidents in action during military um, during military events. So. It just gets to, and I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna ruffle some feathers here because uh, it is somewhat political. Um, was triumphant, triumphant military uh, uh, action by the by the mm -hmm. uh, U.S. to get this very bad person, but this overcompensation mm -hmm. to make it more dramatic. The president's words at the press conference mm -hmm. about him cowering and whimpering, mm -hmm. meaning Baghdadi. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, it just, uh, it, it seems when sometimes when you try too hard mm -hmm. uh, that you diminish the accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, there's this attempt to make statecraft stagecraft. R right, you know, exactly. And, and the uh, challenge is that too often it seems posed and staged. And, uh, and that's unfortunate right. because, as you stated rightly, um, this is a significant moment, yeah. uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, I think it's terrific what the special forces did. I also think it's interesting to think about how different people relate to this moment yes. politically, because uh, uh, the president, you know, has a right to go ahead and you know be you know upbeat totally. about what's transpired. Uh, to what extent does it begin to cross over to, you know, chest beating? Right. Uh, and uh, and it's been interesting watching like the morning shows. Uh, a lot of the Democrats were very very careful. Yes. Uh, about saying this is a great victory for the United States, even a great victory for the president. And it's kind of in contrast to actually what Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> was quoted on television as saying shortly after Osama bin Laden right. was taken out. Which was, Obama, you didn't do this. The right. U.S. military did this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have to watch for what happens during the campaigns. You know, sooner or later, I'm sure he will have been at the actual scene. <laughs> there you go. So listen. You know, this show has been half about baseball. <laughs> you know, but... There is a connection. Of course, I wish I, 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 I wish we still had, had had some joy in Mudville. I know, I know. <laughs> there is none. There is none. But um, this one does have a connection to public relations and, and crisis management. Um, really, would have been an issues management uh, if the Houston Astros hadn't um, handled it so poorly. So the backstory here: when the Astros win. Uh, the American League Championship Series, and they're celebrating in the clubhouse afterwards. Uh, the assistant general manager of the Astros, Brandon Taubin, taunted a trio of female reporters with profane shouts in support of the Astros pitcher Robert Roberto Asuna, yeah. who Houston had traded for, I believe, from Toronto. Mm -hmm. After he had served a 75-game suspension there for That's domestic right. violence last and year, last year, and he was the part of the taunt was, "I'm so glad," yelling at these women, that we got Osuna, and so sports. One of the reporters is a Sports Illustrated female reporter, um, and uh, she writes about it. And immediately when this comes out, the Astros attack Sports Illustrated, 
calling it the the report misleading and completely irresponsible and saying its executive, Taubman, was merely supporting the player during um, a, a difficult time. And then they said the story's fabricated. They took another stab because witnesses began, began to come forward to this say- It's all done out in the open. It's all done out in the open and said, hey, I was there. That's not what happened. And then uh, they came out the second time and strike two, um, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, as that uh, you know, Taubman apologized for his inappropriate language, claims his intentions were misinterpreted, et cetera, et cetera. And then they came out a third time, meaning the Astros, and they released a third statement from the organization, finally saying we were wrong. Third time's a charm. Yeah, third time is a charm. <laughs> so so uh, they fired Taubman, and they apologized to uh, the female reporter from Sports Illustrated, whose name is uh, escaping me, and all the adv- individuals who witnessed this incident or were offended by inappropriate conduct. And so the reason I bring this up, Mike, is the Astros are touted as this you know, super organization, and they seem to be. They continue to put the best product on the field uh, continually, much to our regret as Yankee fans. But it just goes to show you that uh, even the best organizations being good at what you do doesn't mean you're good at handling these kinds of issues or crises. And they clearly stepped on themselves. All they had to say at the beginning was, Let's we'll look into well, it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of organizations, sports or otherwise, all too often you know, want to have that quick statement. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and sometimes it's totally misinformed. Right. Because they don't know who else was there. Right. They don't know under what circumstances uh, something was shared. Mm-hmm. I know when I first heard this story, uh, I, I was kind of, you know, uh, I don't understand what mm-hmm. it exactly took place. But the more and more you looked at it, the more and more it was very clear mm-hmm. that, you know, that what had happened is the assistant general manager had, you know, was taunting, as right, you said. Right, exactly. And that, uh, you know, I guess it's Stephanie Epstein. Right, is that's the uh, name, yes. You know, yeah. that, that she writes this story up. Uh, because she was there. Right. She was one of the ones that had actually been taunted. Um, I, I think most organizations are better off being careful about what they're trying to walk back. Right. I mean, we've talked about this a couple of times exactly. with the current White House and Mick Mulvaney. Yes. You know, that you can't walk something back when the horse has already left the barn. Exactly. And so what you need to do is ask questions, gather information, before you respond. And get an independent view. Absolutely. If, if you're the one making, I always think about this, Mike, uh, around this idea of speed in a crisis is the United pulling the poor guy off the plane. And the first statement, of course, was it was his fault, right? Right. He, right, that he, that he uh, had been disruptive, et cetera. And then, of course, later they had to walk it back. Take your time, learn the facts, get an independent view of it, and then make your your public statement. Well, it's like I'm sitting here with the card with the page principles. Oh, right, right. Number one is tell the truth. Tell the truth. Exactly. So today we have a great show, a really good show. And um, uh, we're going to focus on first ladies and, and spouses of presidential candidates. And, and with a terrific colleague. And with a terrific colleague of ours from BU. And there's our theme for our new section this week is all about Boston University. But well, stick with us here because this is a really great discussion of the politics and the sort of perceptions about first ladies and uh, women in general and women in general.
Our guest on The Crux is uh, author and associate professor of communication at Boston University, Tammy V. Hill. Uh, she is the author of three books, including two published just this year, uh, Moms in Chief, which was published back in January 2019. And that kind of focuses on spouses of presidential candidates uh, in general elections from 1992 to uh, 2016. Then uh, this past month, we have Melania and Michelle, uh, which was published and compares and contrasts uh, our last two first ladies, uh, as well as kind of the changing expectation that society has of these individuals who serve in a highly public, uh, yet technically unofficial, unelected. Uh, but uh, we're especially thrilled to have Tammy in the studio with us. Uh, and uh, she's a terrific colleague. Uh, in her uh, previously, she also was the associate dean here at the College of Communication. Wow. So, Tammy, <laughs> welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's welcome, my honor Tammy. to be here. Thank you for having me. What got you interested in researching the roles of first ladies and the spouses of presidential candidates? Well, that actually started with the spouses side I, because I thought, oh, everybody's researching first ladies, which isn't actually true, but it kind of felt true. Uh -huh. um, but when I did my, my first solo authored book on uh, conventions, national uh -huh. conventions, I did a chapter on different people, like different kinds of speeches. So there was the keynote address, mm -hmm. the vice president's speeches, the acceptance addresses. And I'd noticed that there was this relatively new style of address where the, the spouses of the nominees gave these speeches. Oh, right. Yeah. And so the, this only started really in 1992. The only other speech like, not like it, but uh, by a spouse was, um, was Eleanor Roosevelt in yeah, 1940. And, and that was like third term, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. He, was, he was trying for his third term and uh, there was some concern that he wasn't actually going to get the nomination. So they had her fly in to the convention and give this speech. Oh, I remember this now from the yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. She actually flew the plane for part of the way. So that's oh, wow. Fun. Yeah. Um, and, but, but Nothing was, she couldn't do. Yeah. It, it seems like it. It seems like it. That's for sure. Um, so... So Eleanor gave this great speech that was extremely philosophical, didn't mention the president by name, didn't mention huh. the president by office, really talked more about sort of the philosophy of leadership. And so in that way, it was a totally different speech than the ones that the spouses give now. In 1992, uh, Barbara Bush gave the first contemporary pre uh, prepared speech by mm -hmm. a candidate's spouse. Um, and she started the trend of telling stories to humanize the, the candidate and to get the uh, public to really feel like they knew him as a person as opposed to just thinking about him as you know, George, George Bush, the, the statesman. Right. Um, and so that actually started the trend of the spouses giving these speeches and doing particular things with these speeches. Wow. So in that book, I did a whole chapter on that. But when I was researching for that chapter, I found that there was almost nothing written about spouses of nominees even uh, though they've become such a big part of oh every yeah, campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, well, people should be thinking about this and yeah. talking about it in a much more uh, researched and, and thoughtful kind of way, as opposed to just sort of simply saying, oh, look what she's wearing, or, you know, uh -huh. uh, look, does she bake cookies or not? <laughs> 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 and so that led to the Moms in Chief book, uh, because I had so much that I still wanted to say after the convention book that I just said, I'm digging right in and, and uh, diving deep into this. And so I started really examining uh, both the history and the contemporary uh, treatments of the spouses of presidential nominees, uh, and particularly looking relative to their representations of gender roles. Uh -huh. 
Yeah. You know? um, and so then as I was working on that book, you know, you have to shop the book around. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right? So I'm shopping this book around, and I sent it off to Indiana University Press, and they said, well, we don't really know how to, how to promote that book, but would you be interested in doing another book for us, one that's really focused more on uh, the, the two contemporary first ladies? And I thought, well. Real marketing people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was exactly it. It was the marketing team that came in there like, well, what about this? And how do you, what, are you, what, what do you think if you do this kind of a topic? So then I sat down and had a, a nice phone conversation, about an hour-long conversation with their acquisition editor for their trade press. And so Moms in Chief is very much an academic book, whereas Melania Michelle was designed to be much more of a broad-based mm-hmm. uh, trade, uh-huh. trade press book. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and so they said, we want you to tell more stories, cite fewer sources, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Like, really make it engaging for an everyday reader as opposed to the more academic reader. And I thought, well, you know, I haven't really done anything like that, and so it might be an interesting challenge. Challenge, yeah. Plus, I love the storytelling part because right. all the stuff that I write, I always have these little anecdotes and things like that and so I, I said sure I'll, I'll do that I'll, I'll give it a shot and so they put me under contract for so, so, so you mentioned it, it, as you were answering the question you, you made the comment baking cookies and all of a <laughs> yeah. sudden Hillary Clinton came to mind <laughs> oh, yes. and, 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 and the controversy yes. around the fact that she said well I don't just bake cookies uh, recall some of that and and I guess it actually gets to maybe one of the 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 core insights of your books is that there's this public perception or expectation around what these spouses should be and sometimes that's inconsiderate of who these people really are. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much and, so. <laughs> and, and, and so recount the Hillary Clinton story and, and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, and, and that's part of why my uh, Moms and Chief book starts with, because every cha- the chapters go from 1992 forward, is because 1992 was such an interesting juxtaposition of the spouses of the nominees, and that's actually where the cookie contest uh, originated right. from. And so what happened was, you know, we had the very traditional, matronly kind of seeming Barbara Bush against the new modern woman, Hillary Clinton. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of uh, the, the press kept uh, comparing and contrasting them in terms of. And it was, was Hillary Rodham woman. Clinton. Yes, yes, it was Hillary Rodham Clinton at the time, which was kind of interesting because then we, when we get later on to uh, like Teresa Hines Carey, when she had to add the Carey to her name. So there's a whole lot of issues with naming. But the basic idea was that they kept comparing the women to this ideal of womanhood, where being a mother, being a good wife, being submissive, being uh, interested in helping others but not promoting yourself, that was all the more prized kind of characteristics. And what I found in my research really was that even though 1992 was a particular highlight of that, every single time we have these women coming, mostly women, Mm because we do have uh, 2016 with Bill Clinton, we keep reinforcing this idea of traditional gender roles as being the presumed or the preferred type of way we want our first ladies to act right you know even when we get to michelle obama michelle Michelle obama is you know the every mom that becomes the mom in chief right and so we've got this idea that moms and good wives and submissiveness and And she actually used that phrase didn't she She moms and chief chief. yeah Yeah. that's where i kind of borrowed it from for the title Uh, but but uh, you were asking about the Hillary Clinton cookie contest yeah. competition. So at one point in time, uh, there had been some comments about uh, the Clinton presidency possibly being a dual presidency, 
you get two for the price of one was right. one of the phrases yeah. that had been two used. Two smart in lawyers. And it yeah. was the same thing later on when she was running, right? Yeah. Do we get you two did, presidents here? You yeah. did get a, a sort which, <laughs> which was interestingly different because when she was running, it became Bill Clinton will support her and help her and teach her and guide her and mentor her, whereas she was just going to help. You know, right. Yeah, yeah, help yeah. Me. Uh, but at one point during the primaries, somebody had asked her something about one of the other primary contestants. Um, and I can't remember if it was Brown or somebody else who had made some comments about her uh, and, and about her being untraditional. And she made this sort of glib offhand start to a comment where she said, well, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I decided to, to advance my career. And then she talked about how important it was uh, that all women have choices, whether it is to stay home or it's to go into the workforce or do some combination of the two. Um, but the press kind of just picked up on that little soundbite of her glibly saying, I suppose I could have stayed home. And then they turned it into her hating housewives, not just like <laughs> not being one, but like actively hating them. And so it became a, a thing that haunted her throughout all exactly. of her, her history. And and then so to try to combat that, uh, her the Clinton campaign worked with Family Circle magazine to create the uh, it was then called the First Lady Bake Off. So all of the, the spouses could submit or were asked to submit re- recipes for cookies and stories about having baked those cookies or where they learned the recipe from. And then uh, readers were supposed to try the recipes and then vote. Right. And so then the New York Times picks up the story and all kinds of other, other uh, news outlets pick up this story. So Hillary Clinton's chocolate chip cookies beat out Barbara Bush's chocolate chip cookies, which was amazingly (laughs) unexpected. And then they've had that same competition all the way through uh, with certain spouses getting chastised, even from the very beginning, I guess, because in 1992, Ross Perot's wife didn't submit a cookie recipe. Uh And so then the comments that were written in, I think it was actually the New York Times, where they'd say, oh, she, she must send out for cookies. Right. right. So that or she was more prime for chili. Exactly. And then later on, you get the same sort of things happening where, so for example, um, um, Cindy McCain was mm-hmm. was criticized widely because she, oh, no, took her cookie recipe off of a Hershey's box. Right. Ah. <laughs> As opposed to having it be a some family, family secret. secret yes. Right. And then when Melania Trump. I think, you know, 2016, they had changed it to the presidential cookie competition as opposed to the First Lady Bake Off because Bill Clinton. Um, and so then the Hillary, uh, Melania Trump was criticized because people said, has she ever even eaten a cookie? <laughs> right? but, uh, but then you have Bill Clinton who submitted the Hillary Clinton winning cookie recipe, and nobody complained at all. Everybody uh, just said how lucky he is to have a wife who made it's, so so, so that reinforcement of all the gender te- stereotypes gets encapsulated, I think, in that area. Well, this is really timely for me because I'm just finishing Ron Chernow's book on Washington. Uh-huh. And they've just moved, he's president, and they've just moved the Capitol temporarily to Philadelphia. Mm. And they're continuing the tradition that they had in New York when the Capitol was there, the federal Capitol, of uh, Martha having Friday night salons. Yes. She would invite a group of people to um, and. Washington, who, you know, until I read this book, I didn't know this, had an eye for women, right? <laughs> I mean, he was just, he was always faithful. Uh-huh. Uh, and Probably but, had to be with those wooden teeth. Yeah, well, <laughs> so that's untrue. No yeah, wooden no, teeth. No wooden teeth. Yeah, yeah. No wooden teeth, but so, which I didn't know. Yeah. Um, but he would literally count the number of women who came to these salons oh, wow. and comment in his diary about the numbers 
and the quality. Oh no! <laughs> oh, my oh, so no. Oh, my it goodness. was. Uh, it's a. It's a great book, of course. But yeah. uh, and along these lines, the subtitle of your book, Moms and Chief. By the way, two books in a year. You make me feel so like. It's like the Beatles, right? <laughs> exactly. You know the top five songs in the country. But anyway, let me. So the subtitle here, which is kind of interesting, the rhetoric of Moms and Chief, the rhetoric of Republican motherhood and spouses of presidential nominees, as you say, from '92. The 2016. So what do you mean by Republican motherhood? And I, yeah. s- I assume it's Republican with a small r? Small or? r, yes. Okay. Yes, so yes. W- what, is th- what do you mean by that That's an phrase? excellent question. Yeah. That's usually <laughs> when I have to, when I do book talks, I usually start with an explanation yeah. of that um, because it is small r Republican motherhood, not the party. It's not yeah. like GOP motherhood or, or mm-hmm. anything along those lines. Instead, what it is is that um, sort of retrospectively, uh, scholars have gone back and sort of looked at how women have been talked about over the course of the existence of the American Republic right. and have noticed that there's this pattern of speech about them that really starts to, to happen as the Republic is born after the Revolutionary War. Um, what happened was women after the Revolutionary War, started to sort of want some of the same freedoms and the same responsibilities Mm -hmm. that the men had been arguing for. So you had all of this great rhetoric that had been coming out about, you know, self-representation and and participative government, which is the Mm -hmm. basis of Mm -hmm. republicanism. and so, and the and the women wanted it too. The thought leaders of the time and the political leaders of the time. All men. Yeah, yeah. all men. <laughs> nice, nice little insertion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they uh, they thought it would be easier to get the men to be more revolutionary and to be more uh, really go out there and try to build a nation. Right. Uh, if there were, if the women sort of stayed home and did what was familiar. Right. right? So it gave gave sort of a home base, and so they talked about the ideal female patriot as a mother and a wife, as someone huh. who uh, sacrificed her, her own interests in order to help others, right? Wow. And, and who was subservient. And so they really kind of shaped this idea off of uh, what was once called the Spartan motherhood, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where in Spartan motherhood, the idea was that the good Spartan women would be patriotic by having and raising patriotic sons who would go off to war or right. join the, the republic and who would actually serve in different kinds of ways. And so they gained their own political power through the acts of their husbands and their sons. Right. right? And they taught their daughters to be good Spartan mm-hmm. women. So the idea of, of Republican motherhood was really mir- mirroring that wow. idea where it was really about how the women a good American, you know, in air yes, quotes, <laughs> good, right. a good American uh, and, woman. And, and some people, some first ladies have been very comfortable with that. Yes. And some not so. I, I mean, uh, one of my goals in life, this is born, I have to make this about me, <laughs> is I'm trying to read a biography of every U.S. president. Oh, fun. So, you know, and some of them are, uh, I will, well, I'll tell you, uh, the current president, I might not do that. But um, <laughs> anyway. Well, you, you should try to read a biography of every current, of every first lady. I know, available. exactly. <laughs> but some, uh, you know, the reflections of the first ladies, um, you know, through the president's eyes or the bi- biographers, you know, Bess yeah. Truman and others. And as you mentioned, Eleanor, more than Eleanor Roosevelt, more than anyone, Abigail Adams seemed to be very active. Yeah. So that's obviously when did that begin to change where that idea of the Spartan wife, um, you know, began to to fade? Was it Jackie uh, Onassis or how did the modern view of a first lady, you know, when did that begin? Well, I think part of the part of the thing that's a bit of a challenge in the Moms in Chief book is that 
as, at least during the campaigns and yeah. very much during at least first terms as first ladies, uh, if you want to call them that because yeah. they're not actually elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happens is that most of the time there's an embrace of that customary standard. Right. Right. And so we uh, from 92 forward, the preferred mode of being was to embrace that right. idea. When you don't, Hillary Clinton, for example, in 1992, did not embrace the Republican motherhood yes. ideals, right. and she was lambasted for it. Right. Um, in 2000, Hillary, um, Teresa Hines Carey did not embrace yep. the mm-hmm. Republican motherhood, and people uh, chastised her yes. widely. Yep. Um, and so you kind of keep seeing that. And so every time someone gets criticized for not being it pushes. You know, it pushes others to move in that direction. Exactly. So that's why when you see in 2008, um, Michelle Obama, she starts to have a little bit of trouble at the be- very beginning of the primaries when she's getting uh, critiqued for saying things like she's finally proud to be an American. Yeah. Oh, right, 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 yes. And so the the then template for success as a candidate's spouse is embracing Republican motherhood. So then she goes full on with the embrace. And I'm not trying to say she was disingenuous yeah. for, no, no, for no, being no. A, a, a good mother or a loving uh, spouse. Yeah. But she but, but the strategy of really embracing that aspect of her life and not others, you'll notice she rarely talked about her Harvard education. Exactly. Right? Yeah. She rarely talked about her time as an attorney. She rarely talked about all the work that she did in the mayor's office in Chicago, right. at the University of Chicago hospitals. Like that gets so little mentioned by her and by the campaign. And instead, it's she flies home every night to tuck her, her daughters yeah, in. Exactly. She, you know, and so that becomes the, the interesting focal point. So it's a template for success that that has been very very much a contemporary sort of right uh, of and hard to break out of and very hard to break out of as soon as you do you get yelled at for not baking cookies that's right <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's clear as, as you're talking here that so much of what happens in these campaigns is in part shaped by the campaign staff and their sense of what America will accept in part that's also shaped by what's happening in the media. Sure. Um, and what I'm struck by is, you know, whether it's sexism or in an, in an ability for us to kind of break with traditional norms as a society, um, that we tend to pigeonhole these women. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it can be fairly limiting. And you think about a lot of these women have degrees, several have advanced degrees. Um, you're talking about M- Michelle, but I mean, same could be said about Elizabeth Dole and others right, right. Uh, that were very accomplished in their own right. And then somehow we limit them to baking cookies and raising children and being associated uh, only with causes that I I think to the ear sound like they're they're feminine almost in in, in nature. What Um, they call compassionate compassionate topics. Mm -hmm. Compassionate topics. So what's your sense that this could change or might change what are are, are are there are there breadcrumbs leading to an evolution yeah exactly yeah, yeah there, well i i'm personally hopeful that it'll change yeah. and there are little bits in, of change that we see occasionally like for example i brought up michelle obama and even though she embraced the idea of being the mom in chief as being her primary identity not her sole identity but primary identity both on the campaign trail and as first lady 
Um, she also, though, used that platform. She got people to then listen to her because she seemed a little less offensive than the very outgoing Hillary Clinton, uh, or aggressive, I guess some people would have called her Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. So Michelle Obama got more people to listen to her, and then she created a more progressive message for others. So even though she embraced that seemingly uh, restrictive role, mm-hmm. she used it to argue for other women to not have to embrace that role. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a little bit of sort of the breadcrumbs going along in that in that direction. And then oddly enough, and this really goes back, goes more toward the Melania Michelle book, um, I think Melania Trump, while she's caused her, some of her own problems with the press and the public, mm-hmm. um, there are some ways in which she, by not meeting some of the expectations of a first lady, especially the sort of public speaking and the public outreach in the same sort of ways as previous pa- uh, past first ladies, she actually is is creating opportunities for future first ladies mm-hmm. to also not do those things, right? Yeah. And so to, to take different kinds of routes. And so even though a lot of people give her a really hard time, uh, I I tend to think of her in a little bit different kind of a light where mm-hmm. I think, well, you know, she, the first ladyship isn't an actual position. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's no set criteria for it. The only criteria that are there are the ones that we bring to the table. So it's, we tend to have very- We bring partisan. our own expectations to yeah. what they should be. Exactly. So we, so it, they tend to be very partisan sort yep. of perspectives. They tend uh. to be very, based on our own perspectives of, of gender, of, of um, you know, the roles of women in society altogether. And so I think what she's doing, whether it's, intentional or not, uh-huh. is she's actually create, creating some conversation about what it actually means mm-hmm. to be a first lady. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's a little bit of an indication that there might be some possibility for change yeah. there. Well, well, you wonder, you know, it, we have several women candidates yeah. this time. And, you, you, and clearly, you know, when Hillary Clinton ran... Um, it's a little unique and different because you had Bill Clinton, who was the former president. But one wonders, you know, is there a day where we have a first man, first gent, first husband? I don't know what you call them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, where you have, you know, if Elizabeth Warren were to win and then you'd have Bruce Mann, you know, who's uh, a lawyer and and actually a faculty member at Harvard Law School, you know, or... You have uh, Kamala Harris's husband, who I believe is also a lawyer, Doug Emhoff, um, and Amy Klobuchar. I actually know John Bessler, and uh, he also is a, a law professor. And so you wonder if it's going to take something like that to change it totally, you know, or or even the other the other dramatic choice, obviously, would be uh, Chasten, right. you know, so Buttigieg. 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 Yeah, yeah because yeah. Uh, that would create a whole nother dynamic. Yeah, well, and I think it's kind of interesting that you brought up Chasten because uh, some of the, you know, always looking for a new project <laughs> and, and being interested in this, obviously, I'm going to be watching the uh, the presidential election pretty closely. Mm-hmm. A lot of the coverage of Chasten has been along similar lines as the Republican motherhood idea, ah. where they talk about him as sort of the uh, the parent mm-hmm. of yeah. their dogs, as <laughs> having you know given up his career to support his husband, right? And so you get a lot of the same kind of language. He's a school teacher, him. right? He's a school teacher. Yeah, right. And so you get the sort of throwback to a lot of the past first ladies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, school teacher. That's a good point. Well. Yeah. So you get a lot of the stories about him that tend to reinforce this sort of uh, feminine approach. 
to yeah. understanding a spouse. But the other one, the thing that I think is kind of interesting too about if a woman were to win, I think for sure that would definitely change the conversation because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily expect just because of our still yeah. entrenched societal yes. gender yeah. uh, issues, shall we call them. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, like we wouldn't be talking about, oh, uh, it, are they going to all add last names and hyphenates and those yeah, kinds of things? Yeah, exactly. That, you know, we forced. Uh, well, and in fact, all of these men, all of these men actually use they have, they have different last different names, last names. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. with the exception of Chase. Yeah. yeah, and so it's really fascinating. And then things like, oh, you know, are we going to? If, if one of them was in the White House, are they going to be in charge of the East Wing? Are they going to be in charge <laughs> yes. of the state dinners? Are we going to make such a big deal? The out holiday of decorations. The holiday right. decorations. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, oh, did he choose these? <laughs> decorations or who chose them for him? Or what is he wearing? Exactly. (laughs) He chose an NFL-themed Christmas tree this year. Wouldn't I love to see one of those? (laughs) So I want to get back, Tammy, to Melania and Michelle, because I think it's a really interesting thing that you said about Melania, which maybe she helps through her reticence to be that traditional first lady. It breaks her out of... um, uh, it helps others maybe who follow break out of that role. Um, but you in the book, you talk about similar similarities between sure. uh, the two of them. And here's where I throw in the, of course, the the speeches that Melania <laughs> and Michelle have given are yes. are somewhat similar in that um, Melania somehow ended up giving Michelle's speech. <laughs> big, big chunks of it, big chunks of it. Big chunks of it. <laughs> but I, so I, I just, but I want to focus on Michelle because... Uh, she's a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Her biography is one of the best-selling biographies ever. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, when you when you look at polls of the most popular people, uh, her husband continues to do well, but she is just crazy popular, yeah. right? Yep. So w- how do you account for that, given this role that you just described that she took, where she, there was some traditional Spartan mom stuff going on, but she began to push that into other areas. Uh, you remember during the the campaign between Trump and Hillary, she talked about when they go low, we go high, and everybody quoted her. And she became a surrogate for the Clintons, a very effective surrogate for mm-hmm. the Clintons. So how do you account for her popularity uh, as a first lady um, out of office? Well, I think uh, it, it definitely starts with her as a I, I haven't quite come up with a perfect term for yeah, it yet, uh-huh, but yeah. the, the, spouses, the, the spouse of a nominee, but the sort of pre-First Lady time, right? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. in, in, during the campaign when she was really be showing a lot of personality, but she was also not becoming overbearing with mm-hmm. the personality. Instead, what she was doing was sort of creating points of connection with the audience mm-hmm. by telling the stories about Less so about her life. She didn't. She talked about her kids. She yeah, talked about her yeah. husband. But telling those stories invited audience members to really connect with her on a personal level. Right. When she talked about Barack Obama forgetting to throw his socks in the laundry, right. Right? or leaving the <laughs> butter on the counter, and yeah. those kinds of things, it just makes you feel like, oh man, I know your feet. You know, I know yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> not to steal the Clinton phrase, but I feel your pain. Right. right? Yeah. They start to feel that connection, and you know, in in academic terms, we would call it identification building, right, right? or creating consubstantial consubstantial bonds. You yeah. Start to have other people feel like they know you personally through the stories that you're telling because they have similar experiences. Right. So she started that really early on in the primaries and also the general election during the 2008 campaign and continued that throughout. So when she would do things as first lady like sneak off to Target. 
Right. right? <laughs> and I'm a, I, I think she's a very bright woman. I think she probably could have snuck off to Target and maybe did without other people knowing. Exactly. Right? But kind of leaks out the story. Right. Here are a couple of pictures. And so people are like, oh, she's like us. She's she's going to Target. She's wearing, you know, the, the same kind of brands of clothes right. that we wear. She's talking the same way that we talk. She's, she's an influencer. An right. influencer, right, in lots of different kinds of, of interesting ways. And she made herself extremely accessible by being part of, of um, the public sphere in, you know, like having a, a Twitter feed, right. by, um, going on all of these different talk shows. I mean, she's doing push-ups on Ellen. <laughs> and so, you know, well, the, well, not on Ellen, but on the Ellen show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but she, um, you know, when she's doing those kinds of things, she invites people to see her as a real person, yeah. and a person just like them, even though she has these extraordinary experiences that n- most common people don't actually Never have. have. Yeah. And so I think that invites a lot, even though you do get the criticism on the other side. You exactly. Know, you get a lot of folks who are saying, oh, sh- that's unladylike for her to be doing those kinds of yeah. things. She, uh, she still... And she she appeared to be a good mother. Now I'm going to jinx the Obama kids now, right? <laughs> they haven't been train wrecks yeah. like some other, uh-huh. you know, uh, first, children, first children, I guess you sure. would call them. But yeah. they seem to have been good parents, too. And I think that probably, for both of them, ha- yeah. has a lot to do with their popularity. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I think yeah. that's part of the... the, the effectiveness of her identification building too was that I think there was a, an extreme sincerity to it. Right. Like you never really get that. With Hillary Clinton there was the question of her authenticity. You know, and that started in 1992 and moved forward throughout her time in politics. But with with um with Michelle Obama you never really get questions about her sincerity as a mom, as a person, you know, she seemed she comes across as extremely sincere. Right. And of course I'm putting all of the sort of extreme right critics uh, in a different box because <laughs> right. they tend to have a different kind of question about her. Do you think the just going back to your your book and and the point about which I n- had never really noticed uh, these supportive speeches at the conventions yeah. uh, starting in 92 has that reinforce the stereotype in other words it's great that you get to see them and 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 understand who is the person that's going to be living possibly in in um, the white house but does that just reinforce this secondary supportive traditional role yes yeah (laughs) Yeah, in in a a simple answer yeah exactly Uh, in a little more complex answer though uh it does but you have to sort of it's the spouses are in a really tricky spot when it comes to the conventions right. because the only reason they're speaking is because they are right. the spouse. Right. And so there are certain expectations. They're, they're brought in to talk because they will bring something to the table, yeah. both introducing themselves, as you say, because mm-hmm. they, yeah. they could potentially be the other part of our you know, figurehead couple of the, the nation. Yeah. Right? And they're going to be in the White House and we're going to you know, have to, uh, yeah, for lack of a better word, live with them right? Mm-hmm. for for the four to eight years. Right. But then on the other hand, they're also, they they also end up having to become so submissive that a lot of times, and I think Gary, you mentioned sort of the, the idea of the feeling like, like the, like the feminine, wait, maybe it was Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the, the feminine topics, like the, the more female oriented, yeah. the compassionate topics. Yes. They start to get isolated down into these tiny little, like yeah. this is the small number of topics you can talk about. Mm. This is the small number of ways you can talk about those topics. Yeah. So even though they are also still citizens of the United States yeah. and they are still, uh, they should be able to speak like any other surrogate, because of their role as spouse, they do get into this very restrictive kind exactly. of space. Exactly. And one of those topics shouldn't be, according to critics, 
revising, reforming health care in the United <laughs> States, right? Yeah. Which, right? Which is what happened with Hillary. Yeah, which is a big thing that happened uh, right. with Hillary. But it's it, it's fascinating to me, though, but, you know, just kind of stay on yeah. the train yeah. just a little bit, because what happens with, um, and I think Mike brought up, uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, trying yeah. to get confused. Uh, the, it's uh, click and clack here. Yeah. We're like one person. Now. <laughs> You're like one. Yeah, You're like know. one person. Yes. Um, Elizabeth Dole. Uh-huh. Right. When you bring up Elizabeth Dole, one of the things that was really fascinating about her and about the 1996 campaign altogether was that Elizabeth Dole actually had bigger credentials than her husband who then, was running. Even though Bob, Bob Dole had a, you know, a yep. lot of years in the Senate, she had been the Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Transportation. She'd worked for two presidents. She'd worked on lots of campaigns. She'd worked in lots of different kinds of uh, Washington spaces. Mm-hmm. And yet when it came down to talking about her, she was talked about almost exclusively as a president of the Red Cross. Because that yeah. is a more compassionate situation. Yeah, yes. And when she was asked about issues, if she ventured into talking about things that were related to labor or related to transportation, things that she actually is a bona fide expert, expert in, on, yeah. then she the, the press would shut her down and basically tell her to stay in her lane and that her lane is... Now, how much of that was media and how much of that was campaign handlers? I have a sense that sometimes the the people managing campaigns sort of create these taut lanes, you know, for different roles that people will play in the campaign. I think it's a combination of the two, because uh, I think a lot of times the members of the press tend to like their Mm storylines and there are familiar storylines. They're sort of the go to topics that they can go to every single time out of the gate. They always ask the spouse to give them a tour of the home. To mm-hmm. talk about parenting, to, you know, there's certain things that are always the sort of go-to topics, and it's hard for some people to break out of that. But then I think you're also right that the, um, the, the campaigns set a strategy that they think is going to work. And in mm-hmm. 1996, with, uh, when Hillary Clinton was still being chastised for not baking cookies, and then you layer on top the idea that yeah. she had failed in health care reform. Sure. Uh, so then the dual presidency didn't really pan out, which was doomed from the start anyway. Then moving into 1996, to have these two highly competent women who were very professionally accomplished, both basically racing to be the key, the, be the, the ideal Republican mother. That's so funny. It was yeah. really crazy. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so I think part of it might be the campaign folks saying, we're going to try to shape Hillary or shape um, Elizabeth Dole into the anti-Hillary. Yeah. And there was actually even a Saturday Night Live clip where they made fun of that, <laughs> where they had Liddy Dole. <laughs> you know, she's kicking off her shoes and she's saying, just remember, I'm not Hillary. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> over and over and over again. And it was really you know, so ingrained that I think you, you might be right that there's some strategy well, behind that too. And most campaigns are run by men, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and there are regional reasons, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, reflecting the voter, the voters yeah, in those states, true. but uh, you you know you're right. I I think it's the campaigns yeah. uh, that that maybe so, it's because we've been around campaigns. Yeah, totally, <laughs> I yeah, we sure. see them from the inside. So now you're a student of of um, these spouses. Yeah. Who is your favorite? Ooh, of all of the the yeah. the spouses covered in my book, or just all together? All together, like all of them. I've had a really growing fascination, to be honest, with with Helen Nellie Taft. Ah. Helen Taft is just kind of she keeps popping up everywhere interesting huh. and so you know she was the first um 
spouse of a, a, a well, I guess it, she'd, she'd been a first lady, but uh, she was the first to ride with her husband during the inaugural parade. Yeah, yeah. She was the reason why we have the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C. Ah, that's right, yeah. Uh, I mean, she, there's, there are all these little sort of sprinklings, and she's the one that kind of pushed her husband yeah, into uh-huh. running for president, so... It was kind of she's she's become a very fascinating uh, person in my in in my brain. She also is the only spouse of a of a presidential nominee to attend both the Republican and Democratic national conventions. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness! She went to both of them because she went to see her husband be nominated, and she sat in the front row row of the Democratic convention so that. Uh, the speakers would not speak as ill of her husband because it would have been impolite ah. to say mean things in front Very of the Very clever. Spouse. Human shield. Yeah. Very <laughs> clever. Really interesting. So, Very so you know, I don't know if I'd really call her my absolute favorite, yeah. but she's been sort of fascinating to me lately. So it's kind of... That's great. I did know. Now, now, are there good biographies of, you know, in my quest to read biographies, yeah. There's yeah, some, yeah. there are presidents where there are not good by or at least sure. readable biographies <laughs> of some of them, right? Sure. Uh, but are there, you know, what's the best biography of a first lady or spouse Ooh. that you've read? Is that well, that's a that's a tricky question. Yeah, because um, there there are I think there's a Dolly wide Madison range. I've seen. There's some Dolly Madison. There's some Abigail Adams. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that I think is re- that are interesting. There are a couple of really insightful Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah I would imagine uh, yeah. biographies. But oddly enough, there aren't a whole ton of them. Right? Yeah. Like, like you can't say I'm going to read a biography of every first lady. Uh, no, because they may not they exist. Just don't yeah. exist yeah. Right? Yeah. They get brief mentions in other places. Um, so I think you know, it, off the top of my head, I can't come up with a, a, a specific title. One. Right. Um, but I think some of the Eleanor Roosevelt stuff is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, we'll have I to try one. Yeah, I think the uh, Jackie Kennedy. Obviously, yep. uh-huh. she's going to have a lot of of them. Um, and there's, gosh, I wish I could remember the actual name of it. There's one on Betty Ford. That's uh, that's really fascinating. That well, just shapes yeah, her into a whole. Well, yeah, you know, and what's interesting, I think, with Betty Ford, and clearly it, it's been the case with other first ladies as well, is you don't always agree with your spouse, right? Right, right, right. right. And 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 at what point do they feel comfortable <laughs> expressing those policy differences, either directly to their husband to influence, sure. or even publicly? Right. Do they go on a plane to visit the? Uh, the camps along the border. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 right, yeah, right. yeah. So you know, when do you when do they kind of draw some lines? That's an interesting uh, question, and it re- really varies for each first lady. Obviously, how comfortable she is and what their relationships are behind closed doors. Because from what I've read, and of course I don't know what goes mm-hmm. on behind closed doors. Right, so I don't right, claim right, to know those right. kinds of secrets. But from what I've read, um, you know, Pat Nixon wouldn't have dared to. Yeah, uh, to yeah contradict her husband. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got other people who would. Yeah, you know, Betty, Betty Ford. Betty it, Ford. It, it, exactly. Clearly, you know, Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, yeah. Barbara Bush as well would disagree with her husband, although yeah. we wouldn't necessarily hear that See publicly. Yeah. Until the, the ni- 1992, there were a few times when she yeah. would talk more openly about her, her positions on abortion, on what constitutes yeah. a family, those kinds of things. And then in that point, at that point, people were like, oh, she's finally speaking out. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and some people loved that and some people hated it. So it becomes a bit yeah. of an issue. And what even wonders with Melania Trump is yeah. the Be Best campaign yeah. somewhat of a... Yeah. Uh, when uh, everybody's uh, kind of chiding her for picking cyberbullying, is she actually trying to say something? <laughs> you know? Who knows for sure? It's kind of... It, we all can speculate. <laughs> exactly. But I think it kind of comes back to uh, Lady Bird Johnson. I think she was one. And I'm going to butcher the quote because I don't have it in front of me. And I, yeah. But she had said something to the effect of, of the first lady is, is, uh, 
is basically a, a position w- elected by one person, her husband, and uh-huh. accountable only to that one person. Uh-huh. Right. So the the president is the only constituency that a first lady needs to worry about. Right. So I think that would probably speak to how Lady Bird Johnson thought about her role. But yeah. yeah. Well, and you talked about the border visits with Melania, yeah. and you almost wonder from afar who she is an immigrant. Yeah. And kind of the status yes. that that issue is being given in this administration. Right. You kind of wonder what's going on there and what is she thinking and does she think she has a role to play in influencing that? Yeah. Well, it's it, it's difficult, right? Because yeah. you're trying to crawl into somebody else's mind. And so it's hard to actually say one way or the other. But the fact that she actually did do something, yeah. right? she did get on the plane, even though she wore that jacket. Who knows yeah. why right. she didn't yeah, exactly. thought about that. But she, yeah. Yeah, she did do it. She's gone a couple of times on these visits. And without him. Without him. Yep. And, you know, who knows whether it was with or without his approval or what kind of strategy might be going on behind closed doors. But, you know, she actually did take the initiative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give her credit for that much. Um, and like you said, she, she is an immigrant. She builds a, a case for herself as a mother. Yeah. Right? And nobody's ever yeah. questioned her concern exactly. about a mother. And, you know, her whole Be Best campaign is supposed to be about helping children. Right. right? I mean, that's a big portion right. of it. And so it should align with and about being interests. nice, yes. and not bullying yeah. online. Yeah, and so it becomes um, kind of an interesting my uh, goodness. question. About that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bigger child she should be focusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah, we've got, we definitely have uh, you know some other issues to address. That's true. Maybe I'm, that's I'm the next nice. book. Yeah, that's another. <laughs> so I want to I want to switch topics a little bit, sure. Tammy. So, um, in addition to this um, focus expertise of yours. Um, you're a keen observer of rhetoric and communications, obviously. So, on the current crop of Democrat, and what, I, you know, I know it's hard to pick because there's what four score <laughs> <of> Democrat, whatever <laughs> uh, presidential candidates. Anybody that you're watching, and just from a sort of a, you know, sort of a professional, you know, that sure. we should that you're you're impressed with or. Um, uh, think has an unusual or uh, authentic, more authentic approach than the traditional stuff. Yeah, well, I, I have to say I've been I have been keen on watching particularly the women in the the current yep, campaign, yep. Um, and so I'm I'm kind of fascinated how they do and don't variously mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of embrace the the more customary mm-hmm. approaches to you know American womanhood and those mm-hmm. kinds of things um, and I think it's kind of fascinating how they do and don't use motherhood and spousal affiliations and those kinds mm-hmm. of things for example you get um, Elizabeth Warren Elizabeth Warren you know there's the big joke she has a policy for everything mm-hmm. and when she talks about her policies sometimes she's very keen on talking about it from the perspective of a mother, right? Yeah. which is a big strategy that spouses, female spouses of, nominee, of nominees had used to be able to talk about policies, uh-huh. right? As a mother, I'm concerned with, as a, as a wife, I have this particular experience, right? And so she's doing that, which is kind of shaping some of the identification mm-hmm. building with others and trying to build credibility based on this very gendered approach. Yeah. Uh, which is both expected for a woman, but not expected usually for a presidential candidate. Right. So walking that tightrope of balance, you know, balancing that tightrope is, I think, kind of interesting. Uh, same thing with Kamala Harris. When she's talking about being, you know, she's not a mother. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she, well, yeah. she has no children of her right. own. Yeah. Right. And so she doesn't embrace that. And in, in, instead, people say, oh, yeah, she's the aunt. 
right? right. Yeah. There was a whole Saturday Night Live <laughs> clip about her being the fun aunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so so she still has that relational connection that she, yes. she uses sometimes, uh, but it's not as pronounced. Um, she's out of the race now, but um, I'm totally blanking on her name. She started. She announced her campaign on the uh, uh, with uh, Stephen Colbert on the Late Show. Kirsten Gillibrand. Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah, yes, yeah. thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, so Gillibrand, I was kind of, I have to say, personally very frustrated by, but also very fascinated professionally by her announcement on uh, on Colbert. The Colbert. Yeah. Right when Colbert asked her point blank, he said, "Why should we vote for you?" And her first answer was, as a young mother. Oh, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, she started the answer, and, and then she never moved from that. So yeah. she didn't talk about all of her prof- her political experience. She talk, didn't talk about her professional experience. She was really, as a young mother, I'm concerned with these issues. And then those issues were all of the compassionate topics uh-huh. that we usually talk about. Education. Yeah, and, right. You know, which are important topics and need to be talked about. Uh, but the way that you talk about it, and if you c- couch it in that direction, then it just sort of reinforces these stereotypes. So in watching, these are kinds of the things that whenever I see people talking, I'm like, oh, yay, yeah. or boo, or <laughs> like, let's mix that up a little bit. And so I'm kind of fascinated yeah. by the way that mostly Elizabeth Warren and, and uh, Kamala Harris have been sort of mixing up the appeals. This nurturing sort of, sort of, yes. Yeah, to blend the nurturing with the more strong yeah. or the more heady kinds of approaches that are less often attributed to women. And boy, whoever told Elizabeth Warren to stand and wait for every selfie to be taken. (laughs) Uh Just an amazing, really, you know, as an old advanced guy, right, and an event stager for political candidates to stay for all the selfies from a likability standpoint, right? right? Well, you wonder how many selfies she took before 2019. Right, exactly. But whoever, maybe it was her idea. Maybe. but uh, the likability factor changed, I think, significantly ah, yeah. for her with that. Yeah, and you, I mean, you got to think about it's the old it's the old uh, style of you know shaking hands and kissing babies. That yeah. totally. And now this is you know this is the thing. It's a great way to put it. That's right. That's right. And you talk to people when you do that. Right. Right. So they feel that connection, that personal connection. Like, oh, I got a picture, yeah. and we had that chit chat for yeah. the moment. Yeah. Exactly. So in in re- researching these two books, yeah. was there Anything that really st- struck you as a big surprise? Mm, let's see. I want to say yes. <laughs> like I would love to say yes. Um, or did everybody just conform? Well, I guess the biggest the biggest surprise for me in the Moms in Chief book was how much everybody still conforms. Mm-hmm. Like you want, I really, really wanted there to be some big major shift. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find that moment when you, we sort of pivoted and women were mm-hmm. starting to be treated differently. And, and instead I get, you know, quotes from Richard Nixon where he's saying, you know, intellect in a woman is unbecoming, you know, things right, like that. Right. And so it was one of those things where it just kind of kept going and going and going. And then I get Bill Clinton saying, you know, giving his DNC speech uh-huh. and talking about how all of the opportunities he gave to his wife. Yeah, right? Right. When I was the governor, I let her do this. When I was the <laughs> Did he ever say I as a dad? Yeah. As a husband? A little bit. Yeah. But his as a dad, as a husband stuff was more along the lines of, oh, Chelsea and I watched Ghostbusters because she was sick. Right. And so there was that moment. But he really more embraced the traditional masculine role, forcing Hillary Clinton into a much more traditional feminine role, which 
I would think that the strategists in the campaign probably thought was helpful because it would make her more likable and make right. her feel more relatable. But she's running for president, and presidents tend to need to be stronger too. And so there was there's a bit of a conflict that's going that goes on there, and that's really going to be a double bind that women face a lot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no matter what. So yeah. so in that book, that was probably the most surprising thing was how little things had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Melania Michelle book, um, I guess. I wasn't so much surprised by the things that I found as I was um, shocked by some of the criticisms of both mm. of the women. Just the, the sort of audacity that people have right. in thinking they have the right, right. to be so rude and so mean-spirited. Judgmental. Like having yeah. so shoulders judgmental. bare. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like having the shoulders be bare, having, you know, when there were people who were flat out calling Michelle Obama an ape. Right. You know, yeah. Making her not be a person when they're talking about uh, Melania Trump and giving her such a hard time about her accent, mm-hmm. you know, and how she can't be very bright because she can't speak proper English, even though she can speak multiple languages. Mm-hmm. And so the the fact that people think they have the right to make these kinds of judgments about these be, these women mm-hmm. based upon the jobs their husbands have. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's sort of like I try to think about what other positions are there where the women or the spouse becomes such a big open target based on wh- who they're married right, to. Right, right. And it's sort of, well, I am, I'm sure well, there you, are some, but... You, you have sort of, and, and I don't know if this is the case, but, you know, wives of CEOs... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, traditionally have played a very similar role in some sure. of these big organizations, and some today most choose not to, mm-hmm. which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Where the, you know the entertainment and the sort of s- social director of mm-hmm. the of the yeah. C suite and all of that. But you're right. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Can't think of it in any well, other place. And those women get to, or those spouses get to choose. Right. Not exactly. To do that, whereas we don't seem to let that be the case. With Society kind of forces it. Yeah, exactly. It forces that forces their hand, and then complains about whether or not they do it well, and whether or not they do it in the right oh, shoes. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, so, so, so that's I think, I don't know if I'd say surprising, but a bit, bit sort of disheartening. Disheartening. Just how much yeah. people, and then just as sort of another little aside. When people have been reading the book too, they have they bring their political yeah. uh, perspectives to Completely. bear as well, and so it's sort of like, how dare you say this about Michelle? How dare you say that about <laughs> Melania? Oh no! And it's, it's sort of like, well, did you read the whole book? <laughs> <laughs> there weren't equal opportunity yeah. with their criticism. No, I take it. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tends to be more more. I guess our approach to the first ladyship tends to be much more partisan than we'd Very. like to admit. Yeah. Very. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Tammy, it's been a delight. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for, uh, for our listeners. Mel- Melania and Michelle, just recently published, can be found on the Indiana University Press website as well. I think it's available through Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Yep. Uh, Moms in Chief can also be ordered on those two sites and can be uh, retrieved by visiting the University uh, Press of Kansas. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.